Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Seitz. Hey, quick programming note. Uh, if uh, you have not yet signed up for Bulwark Plus, we would certainly encourage you to do that. Uh, gives you access to our morning newsletter, my Morning Shots newsletter, which, by the way, is filled with irrational exuberance this morning. It's uh, it's kind of a different look for me that looking ahead and saying, here's a modified case for optimism, the things might not just return to normal, they might actually be better than normal. Uh, kind of a springtime for Biden and the rest of us. Uh, you also get the JVL's midday newsletter. We have a host of podcasts, uh, including The Next Level, The Secret Podcast, Sonny Bunch has a podcast, and of course, Mona Charon has uh, begged to differ, uh, all of that. And one of the special features that we offer are the Thursday night uh, Bulwark, what do we call it? Bulwark live stream, Bulwark Plus live streams, uh, I think we call it uh, Bulwark Thursday night or Thursday Bulwark, whatever. Uh, in any case, we're going to be doing it again tonight to uh, mark the president's first big speech. Joe Biden, uh, having uh, successfully gotten the COVID relief plan through uh, Congress, uh, is going to be speaking to the nation. Uh, and, of course, we'll be marking the one-year anniversary of uh, the COVID pandemic, which has cost more than a half million American lives. We, we will... Uh, we will come on live at uh, nine o'clock Eastern time. Uh, if you can join us live, that would be great. We post it the next day. There are other ways of watching it, but this is something that uh, is uh, is reserved for Bulwark Plus members. Uh, and so, if you if you do sign up, you can you can get it. Um, but uh, in any case, today does mark this interesting anniversary. Uh, it is one year. We can look back on the way the world has changed in the last year. We can look back on, you know, the comments by the former president, the uh, the the former guy who uh, said it would just magically disappear. As it turned out, he was the one who magically disappeared. And of course, uh, looking ahead to the the politics of of this massive money cannon that is about to be fired across the country. And so uh, joining us once again on the podcast, Sharish Date from The Huffington Post. Uh, welcome back on the podcast, Sharish. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you have a new book out. Well, you have an old book that's new. That's for, for <laughs> right. authors that that actually means something. Um, the, your your book, Useful Idiots, came out last year. Is that right? That's right. Last uh, last September, and there's a a new chapter now, uh, and you know, updated the whole thing. But in particular, we talk about the uh, uh, what happened on January sixth and what led to that, and and what that means for the Republican Party going forward, because it's that was something. It really was, and we've almost, as a country, forgotten about it already, <laughs> and that's kind of alarming. Okay. I, I am, I am obsessed about this <laughs> because because it has been, it has not been that long. It has been a little more than two months. It was one of the most extraordinary moments in American history, and not only have we forgotten about it, but the Republican Party seems utterly unshamed by it. Uh, they're they're already complaining about uh, the levels of security in in Washington. There's no sense uh, that they need to clean house. They continue to empower Marjorie Taylor Greene. It really is remarkable. And you would you would have thought, and again, this is already old. After two months, you would have thought that that would have been a a, a shocking moment that would have that would have inspired you know deep introspection on the part of the Republican Party. And it lasted about five minutes, didn't it? It did. And, and to me, this is yet another example. And now we've gotten to an extreme point here about putting the frog in the water and turning the heat up slowly. Right. I mean, we had it in twenty nineteen. 
we had the president of the United States extorting a foreign power to try to win re-election. And the Republican Party said, ah, that's cool. Not a big deal. So he did something wrong. So what? He doesn't deserve impeachment. So that became the new normal. It's okay to tell a, uh, another country, you need to help me win re-election or you're not going to get military aid. You're not going to get this or that. And then this time around, we actually had an attempted coup. Let's call it what it is, right? He used the threat of violence to try to remain in power despite an election he had lost. Fiona Hill had a great piece in Politico not long afterward saying, I've seen coups. This was a coup. This was a coup attempt. And yet now this is part of what's normal? I mean, come on. This ought to be a fundamental part of democracy is when you lose, you lose. You leave and you hand over power with dignity, and that's that. And uh, I don't know what to say about this. Well, look, uh, you, you mentioned the boiling frog, which I, I, is is relevant here, because I think that what a lot of Republicans would like to do is simply say, well, that's the past. We're just moving on. It's in the rearview mirror, and, okay, we're not going to uh, vote to convict him. We're, we will condemn him, but even the condemnation has seems to have a— an expiration date on all of this. So it's like, okay, so that happened. It's bad. Let's move on. But the problem is, is that I, I just have the sense that what happened on January 6th is not a one-time event, that it, that, it, that is this rolling new normal, that there that it was based on the big lie. And of course, I want to talk to you about this a little bit later. A lot of what's happening right now with, with American voting rights uh, is also a, a continuation of, of that big lie, but also the empowerment of these groups, which have not gone away, I mean, it, it is not as if the Proud Boys has been shattered or the Three Percenters or any of those other groups that are out there. That uh, they, they may seem to be, you know, in the shadows at the moment, but my sense is that they have a completely different view of what happened on January 6th than, say, you or I would have, that they, that they will see it as, uh, as, as kind of a Patriot's Day. And as a result, they're, uh, they, they are now a real factor in American politics and particularly in Republican politics. Yeah. I mean, they're a constituency, I mean, it, right? I mean, they're, they're like too big to, uh, to condemn now. Well, I guess my, my only sense of opt- feeling of optimism here is that there's a whole lot of criminal prosecutions outstanding and let's see where we are in three months and six months and nine months as some of these, you know, come to trial or, uh, or pleaded out and you've got some people ratting out some bigger people but you know this is this is you know i this was an armed insurrection they wanted to overthrow the government <laughs> you know and uh, uh the president at the time supported it he called them patriots he told them go and go in love this is you know we can't this is uh this is not how we want to be remembered and some nonsense like that and immediately afterward praised them again uh i, I want to point out that two days after this two days after this in amelia island i was at the rnc meeting and Rona McDaniel, the chairwoman of the RNC, said that she was going to go to state capitals all over the country to, quote, make sure that what we saw in this election never happens again, unquote. In other words, she was pushing the big lie that caused what had happened just two days earlier. So I guess among RNC members, right? So these are presumably grownups who have been in politics for a while. She wasn't talking to, you know, the uh, just a, a group of, of people at a rally or something like that. So that really struck me then was there was no sense of, golly, we've gone too far. 
you know, this is a, yeah. this is a problem when we need to regroup. They were fine with it. They were fine with it from the days that it happened, and they remain fine with it now. Well, this was also one of those five minute windows when Nikki Haley was was willing to separate herself from Trump. I mean, there's always there. They, they go back and forth. But she, she was willing to say this was this was wrong until she realized that there was nobody with her. And she had to she had to scurry back and try to try to get an, an audience at, at, at Mar-a-Lago. So uh, <laughs> but, you know, that, that that's why I keep thinking that that event which we seem so intent on putting in the memory hole, particularly the Republicans and the conservative media, that event is is going to reverberate, resonate for a very long time. I think it's going to affect American politics uh, a lot longer than we think. Uh, and I, I use this, I always had this, this, this image in my mind sometimes that we don't immediately understand the implications of things. It's the it's the uh, torpedo that that hits the warship below the waterline, and the and, and the ship keeps going on, keeps moving, um, but it's taking on water, and it's going to be down in just a little while. But we don't get it at uh, we don't get it at first. Hey, so by the way, my apologies, I, I got the name of your book wrong, which is significant. It's useful idiot, right? The useful idiot, and uh, the new right. subtitle is why we're not done with him yet. Okay, and uh, obviously, when even Nikki Haley feels compelled to try to go and kiss the former president's ring at Mar-a-Lago. That's all you need to know. You know okay, so so the, the reason why it's important that, that I clarify this is your book is The Useful Idiot because our colleague, Mona Charon, once wrote a book called Useful Idiots, ah, which okay. is completely different, which is how <laughs> liberals got it wrong in the Cold War. So I do not want to confuse The Useful Idiot with Useful Idiots by Mona Charon. Not at all the same, not at all the same thing. So your new subhead is why we're not done with him yet. It is interesting that, I mean, he's still there. There's no question about it that, you know, he still has this incredible hold over the Republican Party. But I have to say, at least for the moment, and, and I, I could get over this, it does feel like he is receding into the background. The, the impact of his Twitter ban is much greater than I thought. And when he puts out these statements, they appear to be like several degrees more absurd when they don't have the sort of the the imprimatur of Twitter. Do you know what I mean about that when I say that? <laughs> right. Well, you know, there was this one Twitter account that took his took his right. uh, Twitter feed and then wrote it up as a presidential statement. And, you know, this that is was what hilarious I was thinking about. It was, it was just hilarious. so ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. So that's exactly that's exactly what I was thinking about. That was a joke back then. And it did make them it did make them look more ridiculous when you put them out as a presidential statement with a presidential seal. But right. that, that that's the reality now. And he's putting out these tweets whining about how remember that I did this, you know, with with the with the vaccine, which is you know, I, I think Sarah Longwell said, you know, crank, cranky pants, sore loser man putting out these tweets. And they're just they're, they're not. OK, let me just read this one statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th president of the United States of America. I hope everyone remembers when they're getting the covid-19 often referred to as the China virus vaccine, that if I wasn't president, you wouldn't be getting that beautiful, quote unquote, shot for five years at best and probably wouldn't be getting it at all. I hope everyone remembers exclamation point. Yeah, it, you know, not a single part of that is true. And that's that, that was the case for most of his tweets during this entire presidency, right? And so, uh, on, on the other hand, um, it's still kind of novel, and people are still retweeting his stuff or taking his statements and putting them out into Twitter. But again, you know, most of the world doesn't get Twitter, doesn't care about Twitter. And it's like 20% of America uh, even bothers with it. So, 
you're, I mean, you're absolutely right that his inability to get on Twitter, and I would add Facebook's even more important, um, is really going to cut down on how relevant he is. The only question is, when does the Republican Party realize this and move on? And I'm not sure that uh, I see any sign of that yet. No, and obviously he's he's uh, continuing to put the screws on, saying that uh, you know don't use my name or my image without my permission. Uh, the 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 threat real. Um, I don't know how real it is, but that he's going to somehow uh, you know cut off the the RNC, the Republican Senate Committee, the Republican Congressional Committee, uh, and you know it, it's all about him. So that you know unless unless they keep, you know continue to bow the knee that he's going to use his influence to shut off the money taps, which has got to be a real threat for these guys. I mean, that, that, that's how you get Kevin McCarthy and, and, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the turtles attention. <laughs> right. Well, this is true, but you know, we got to remember that he's bad at most things. And the reason that he was able to raise so many small dollar donations when he was president was he had the RNC machinery behind him. Right. So right now they're trying to use his name and then also use their own um, fundraising apparatus to continue raising the kind of money in small donations that they were. And he's saying, oh, no, you can't use my name. You can't use my picture and so on. And I thought it interesting that, that the lawyer, the RNC's lawyer's letter to him said, well, actually, the First Amendment says we can and we haven't used your likeness. And of course, Mr. President, we wouldn't do such a thing without your permission. No, and then, no. by the way, here. We'll hold one of these events at Mar-a-Lago. How's that, right? And so they're basically buying them off with this. They're they're yeah. going to throw another few hundred thousand dollars directly into his own into his pocket in order to hold one of their events at his place, just like he'd been making them do for four years. So we'll see how this grift, plays the, out. The, the grift is forever. They are hostage yeah. to the grift for all times. All right, let's talk about where we're at right now. Uh, Congress has now passed $1.9 trillion relief package. This is one of the largest ever. It, it is so big that the the price tag of this bill is larger than the gross domestic products of, of whole countries. I mean, it is, <laughs> it is, it is that big. The president's going to give a speech. It is a massive money cannon. Not a single Republican voted for it, which is really, in, in a lot of ways, not that surprising considering how much spending there is in, in all of that. So give me your take on how this plays out and 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 whether or not Joe Biden and the Democrats are going to be more successful at selling this than Barack Obama was back in 2009 selling his stimulus package. Right. Well, I think in 2009, a... Most economists will say that the reason the stimulus didn't work, it wasn't big enough. And had it been larger, had it been like a trillion and a half, two trillion, it might have actually started moving the needle in time for the midterm elections, which is, of course, what what really hurt Obama going into the second half of his first term, uh, losing all those House seats. Um, I, I think that the idea of whether Republicans voted for it, didn't vote for it, et cetera, you know, they, I'm not sure how important that is in the end. Is the economy good? Joe Biden will get credit for it. If the economy isn't good, Joe Biden will be blamed for it not being good. And I think that was the case in 1994. And then in 1996, Clinton won because things really picked up. Just about every election we can, we can attribute to the state of um, people's own personal pocketbooks and how they felt about things. So I, I, don't, I, I don't read a whole lot of into where Republicans are now. It's interesting. Again, they are um, concerned about the debt. 
So that's good because for four years, <laughs> that, that ought not to be an issue anymore. Uh, but, you know, and, and again, this is a big wad of money, but it's one time money. This is not like a recurring thing that next year it'll be another one and a half trillion dollars. This is it. This is the stimulus. It's a one time shot. And um, it's, it's not going to add recurring debt year after year after year like you know, uh, recurring programs or tax cuts or something like that would do. Yeah, but some of that stuff they're going to want to keep going. I mean, I, I, I do think that there's going to be momentum for uh, an enhanced child credit of some kind, and there may even be bipartisan support, although that's always unlikely these days. Uh, it's, it, there's going to be a tremendous amount of pressure and temptation to continue many of those things because people are going to like it. I mean, this is this is a real shift in public policy in a lot of ways, you know, to, uh, you know, shift public resources into supporting families and, you know, whether it's, you know, child care or, uh, you know, this sort of thing or, or, or infrastructure. Um, I, this, this does seem like a permanent ratcheting up and a different approach to, to spending than we've seen even from Democrats in the past. Right, that's true. Well, I, I have to uh, get myself smarter on modern monetary theory because I think that's where we're headed, regardless of who's running Washington. Which um, is the deficits don't matter. Uh, correct. Which you know, remember, uh, I, I believe uh, Dick Cheney said that in in two thousand and two or two thousand and three. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, we've we've heard the the this is all catastrophic. If this, if if our debt to GDP ratio hits this amount and this amount, and maybe bond rates drop further, and and you know eventually, of course, stuff is paid for. The economy has to be productive enough as a whole. Whether you know it's it's you know, we pay through uh, decreased yields on on bonds or or, or whatever. It, this is how it's going. It's nothing is yeah. ever free. It's like thermodynamics, no, it, right? It, I mean, it, it, so. is, it is not free. And I got, I got to say that I, 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 I do think that I'm, I'm, I'm still skeptical of the whole, you know, free money we never have to pay it back type thing, you know, philosophy. I mean, there is, there is always some sort of a consequence. But this again, I, I keep going back to Republicans who are willing to blow up the deficit for the tax cuts. Now, I've been, you know, long in favor of tax cuts. I don't think it was ever a tax cut that I didn't, didn't favor. But when you look back at the 2007 17 uh, tax cut. I, I keep asking, what problem was it designed? What crisis was it designed to deal with? I mean, it was this: the economy was going well. We were had, had peace and prosperity, and they blew open the deficit for no particular reason other than ideological. This was what Republicans did, and as a result, now they have very little credibility when it comes to the issue of the deficit. But I, you know, I, I am fascinated by watching the Republicans right now, how they kind of twisted around this axle of being, quote unquote, conservative while also being populist. Because you can certainly imagine a, an Earth 3.0 where not only did they endorse sending out free money in the form of checks, which, which Trump wanted to do and liked doing, I could certainly imagine them pushing out child benefits, uh, you know, pushing out things like... Uh, uh, you know, uh, fam family leave and stuff as a, as a populist working class kind of thing. But when the Democrats do it, they have a hard time now. I think this is one of the reasons why they have a hard time getting their teeth into this particular piece of legislation, because, you know, frankly, they, the populist New Republican Party, likes giving out money, right? Likes, in fact, this this sort of thing, which also means that they... And they they feel much more, so they they feel much more comfortable talking about the culture war stuff, 
it's almost like that's their muscle memory, right? They're kind of lazy about all of that. It's like, okay, we could argue about this public policy or that public policy, or we would structure this differently than that. Or how about having the earned income tax credit be blah, blah, blah. No, they'd much rather talk about Mr. Potato Head, those things, (laughs) because frankly, you know, they know that that's what the Republican Party is about these days. Yeah, it it really is amazing that uh, I was going through and looking at, well, what do they actually believe in in terms of policy? What is their agenda? And I could find nothing. I'm really uh, you know, they talk about cancel. Yeah. I went to CPAC, right? I made a mistake right. of doing that. Culture. And you know, talk yeah. about about cancel culture. We're being uh, we're being censored and big tech and uh, and you know trans rights and and so et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I could not find a single thing except for one, which was um, the rolling back of, of voting rights. And that seemed to be like the actual agenda here was to change the rules of who can vote and uh, and how. Okay, let's, let, let's talk about this because I know you have a piece coming out about all of this. I, I do find that this to be remarkable, and I and I agree with you. On my newsletter yesterday, I talked about a fundraising letter I got from Ron Johnson, which is railing against the cancel culture and uh, the the attacks on free speech and the, the alliance between the Biden, Pelosi, Schumer, liberals, and and their friends at at Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and railing about Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube and what they're going to do. The one thing that was absent, of course, was what he would actually do about it. I mean, demanded we need to act. Well, what? What are you proposing? Uh, you, you know, five minutes ago, you were this free market you know, guy who didn't think government should tell private companies what to do. Are you telling them that that the federal government should step in and tell YouTube that they should, you know, publish racist or, or uh, videos or disinformation or hate? I mean, what exactly is the remedy? There's there's it's more posture than policy. There's, there's no, there's no there there, except you know you're real against the cancel culture. So, Senator, what exactly are you going to do about that? I, I mean, I never hear the answer to that. Right. Well, you know, the the one piece that I hear is, well, we'll get rid of their protections under the uh, yeah, under how the that, internet. How, how does that work? Well, well okay, it, I don't think they fully realize this, but no. it would basically destroy these platforms. Right. Yeah. I mean, if any yuts can get on there, it's not allowed to get on there and say crazy conspiracy stuff without the threat of Facebook getting sued. Facebook's not going to allow them to do that. Done. Right. I mean, they're not going to take they're not going to want to be the deep pockets for the, the you know, the growth industry that will become defamation law. I mean, so um, yeah, there no, is. Well, no I mean, well and, they, and, and in fact, it creates more incentive for the platforms than to pull things that are exactly are, are, are distasteful. So that that's the part where I'm going, OK, so up up until again yesterday, I mean this metaphorically, every conservative in America said absolutely no private company should be you know forced to say anything that they don't believe in. No baker should be forced to make a you know gay wedding cake. No photographer should be forced to go and shoot a gay wedding. Remember all that stuff? Well, no, now it's like, no, we must force Twitter to run this account and say <laughs> these, these sorts of things. It is completely incoherent. But you are right. As far as I can see right now, the real id of the Republican Party, the one thing that really seems to motivate them um, in both a culture war, visceral, emotional level, as well as a policy level, is rolling back voting rights, and it does feel like we're kind of in a second reconstruction. Is that is that was is that your line the that we're going through this again now? Right. I wish I could take credit for it, but no, it's uh, it, it's been out there a little while. You know, just 
just as the end of Reconstruction meant the rolling back of the rights, particularly voting rights, for uh, black Americans who had just been freed, we're seeing kind of the same thing again. This is like an overarching, coordinated, this is happening in 43 states, right? We're getting these laws pushed by almost all of them by Republicans um, to make it harder to vote and to undo the changes that have happened over the last 10, 15 years, and particularly in the last year, which had a, saw a lot of uh, rules and laws designed to let people vote from home, you know, using mail ballots because of the pandemic. So you know, this is this is it. This is their their reason for being right now is to, you know, w- what's really struck me was I remember after the, the party lost in 2012, right? Remember Mitt Romney uh, in an election they thought they were going to win, ended up losing by four points. And they had this this autopsy afterward, the Growth and Opportunity Project, and they studied what happened, what went wrong, what they needed to change. And they really put some work into figuring out how they can move forward. This time, we see none of that. No, we see none of that. And instead, the answer is, all right, well, uh, the only commission they've put together after the RNC has uh, after this election is election integrity, right? And, it, <laughs> and the people honored are the same folks who were pushing the crazy conspiracy theories about Dominion voting and uh, systems changing ballots and, and the millions of illegal ballots, all that crazy stuff. That's where they are. This is, that's their, their, the meat on the bones is basically uh, an opposition to voting rights. Well, and I think it's part, in part because they've internalized the idea that the more people that vote, the easier it is to vote, the less likely it is that Republicans will win elections. They've internalized this, which is sort of fundamentally anti-democratic. Now, they don't want to say that, but that's right. the way they act. That, right. that, that I don't think it's necessarily true, you know, no. uh, but nonetheless, but that is what they, you're absolutely right. That is what they believe. And that's what they're acting on. Well, and also, I think that they are starting to figure out at some level um, that they can continue to hold power with with, minor, with a minority of the vote. They don't need to win most Americans' votes for the presidential election. The what is the only time they've done it is two thousand and four. They don't need to win a majority of Americans to control the Senate uh, with a gerrymandered House. They don't need a majority. But this also kind of has there's kind of a cancer to this, which is that also means that rather than focusing on persuading voters, believing that they have better ideas, they have become more and more insular. It's all become about the base and about restricting the franchise. And I don't know where this is going to go. It could be successful in the short run. I mean, a lot of people who believe that uh, they could use that gerrymandering, they could use the voter suppression, um, continue to ride the Electoral College. And no, I mean, it, it Donald Trump could have lost this election by 7 million votes and still won the presidency. I mean, that's people exactly need to right. realize that. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I I did the math. It's like 44 or 42,300 votes and you flip uh, Georgia, Arizona and Wisconsin. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that puts it into the House of Representatives with a tie, 269-269 tie. And if he'd gotten another 20,000 votes in, in Nebraska, too, I believe, yeah. that would have flipped that and that's it. 60,000 votes and you lose by 7 million and still win the presidency. There's something wrong there. I mean, that is, that's not, that's not a recipe for success for a democratic country. And I, and I don't think the founders ever anticipated that such a possibility would exist. I mean, remember in the old days, the electoral college would amplify, vastly amplify the, the margin of victory than in what you had in the popular vote. And that's, 
that's gone now. I mean, in fact, it's in three out of the last eight elections, it's actually reversed it. So you know, I don't know what the answer is, but uh, if, the, if the Republican Party is not looking at ways to make a legitimate claim to majority support, I don't think that ends well. No, I don't. And look, I have uh, I have uh, somewhat contrarian uh, ideas about HR one. Um, I think there's a lot of important things to it. And again, this is my point. Is look, there's a there's a there's a real threat to voting rights. There's a real threat to democratic norms, and I do think that Congress needs to do something. So if they put a bill up that is dead on arrival, that's a bad thing. Um, and I think that, uh, again, uh, I am not saying that they should not try to get some voting reform to have a Voting Rights Act. I think they ought to put all of their chips behind the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Um, I think that if they had a slimmed down H.R. 1 that dealt with some of this voter suppression, that they they, they could get this through. Um, it, and it might even be worth abolishing the filibuster for. But that, that as written, the thing is just over overstuffed. And I... I, I you know, again, it's it's back. It's it's part of my opposition to HR one is written is because I think it's so urgent that something actually get passed, and right. uh, that, so that that that's where I come down on on this. But I I agree with you. I, I mean, I I think this story of the voter suppression is really extraordinary. And and again, we I know we're repeating ourselves here, but the fact that it is based on the the big lie of the president. By the way, speaking of the big lie, um, Lordy, there are tapes. Um, oh my! Yeah. Oh my! Oh my! I this is this is something extraordinary. The, the Wall Street Journal got its hands on the audio tape of President Trump's call to the top investigator. I mean, he went down. The, he's not talking about elected officials or right. You know, he's talking about an investigator, this woman whose job it was to you know look to see if anything was wrong. The President of the United States calls her directly, and the Wall Street Journal has the audio tape. Now, the Washington Post had reported on this call before, but now we actually listen. You want to listen to like a minute of it? Because it's a couple sure. of cuts. So, okay, this is this is the President of the United States trying to cajole slash bully this official to flip the state of Georgia. Here it is. You know, something happened there. I mean, something bad happened. And I hope you join that uh, that stop because if you're, uh, you know, I hope you're going back two years as opposed to just checking, you know, one against the other because that would just be sort of a, a, uh, a signature check that didn't mean anything. But if you go back two years and if you can get to Fulton, you're going to find things that are going to be unbelievable for the, the dishonesty that, we're, that we've heard from them. Right. You know, just good sources, really right. good sources. But Fulton, Fulton is the mother load, you know, as the expression goes, Fulton County. Right. And, uh, well, Mr. President. I don't want to say, you know, Right. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate your comments, and, and I, I, I can assure you that our team and the GBI that we're only interested right. in, in in the truth and and finding you know, finding the information that's based on the facts. Do you think they'll be working after Christmas to keep it going fast? Because you know we have that date of the sticks, which is a very important date. Right, and, right. Uh, I, I, I know, so I know you've got that coming up, and and I, I can assure you that that you know I, I'm I'm going to be working, uh, and and we're going to be working, and it's um. Good. 
and he goes on. And, and I, I think you know part of it's sort of entertaining where he's explaining why he couldn't possibly have lost Georgia because he won Alabama and he won all of these other states and he won Florida, he won <laughs> Texas. Therefore, it is impossible for him right. to have lost Georgia. And he's got nothing. He's got no evidence whatsoever. But he's he is he was serious about trying to get these officials to overturn the election. And Sharish, nothing like this remotely has happened in American history before. I don't know how how many times we can we can reiterate that or repeat that. When Nixon had people break in, or perhaps they only found out about it afterward. But when when those people broke in, broke into the Watergate, it was to just find out what the DNC was going to do, right? Find out their secret plans for the election. They didn't try to overturn the election. They didn't try to like <laughs> literally steal, you know, an election they had lost or to, I mean, this is really amazing. But, you know, on the other hand, we had some Republicans, some uh, nonpartisan officials in Georgia who decided, you know, enough's enough. And um, I'm not a party to this. And, that's why we have these tapes. And this may end up being the clearest, easiest criminal case against the president, against the former president. It is so, going to be. Yeah, it, it is. It is going to be interesting. Uh, so one other thing I wanted just to bounce off you, I, I think there was a lot of speculation about what would happen with conservative media after the election. Would would Fox News move back towards the center? Would it uh, you know become more post-Trump? I think it's very clear now what's happening is that Fox News is is becoming worse. <laughs> that Tucker Carlson is moving um, much more aggressively into the culture war, um, into the unsubtle culture war. And part of this is just, I mean, I'll be cynical about it. I mean, it's the competitive environment where you have, you know, the, you have Newsmax, you have One America News Network now, whatever, um, you know, going, you know, further crazy. Therefore, Fox doesn't want to be out flying. But I will say that just in the last few days, I mean, some of the stuff on Fox News, it is kind of breathtaking. Number one, Tucker Carlson uh, and others giving uh, giving platforms to Alex Berenson, the uh, COVID denier, anti-vax, I would say, um, you know, a conspiracy theory nut job. I mean, guy has been discredited over and over and over again. They give him a platform. Uh, and then now Tucker's clearly teeing up the George Floyd case. Of course, you know, Derek Chauvin, the, the right. cop who knelt on his neck for nine minutes is is going on trial. And Tucker Carlson is wrapping this in this whole uh, attempt by the left to have open racism against white people. Let, let's just play Tucker Carlson. And, and because this is going to be a major theme that that not only is, uh, you know, was George Floyd's uh, murder somehow justifiable, they're going to be all in on that, but that um, that the, the the campaign is 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 essentially racist against white people. This is Tucker Carlson. George Floyd's death was sad. Every death is sad, as we often point out. But the question is, was it murder? That question matters deeply because George Floyd's death has been used to reshape how we live in this country. Because he died, we have something called equity. And under the pretext of equity, our leaders have enshrined open racism in nearly all of our institutions. You see it everywhere, from corporate hiring quotas to woke kindergarten lesson plans. Americans have been told that George Floyd's death was a racist murder, and they're responsible for it. Okay, Sharish, 
this whole thing um, that there is no racism, that the real open racism is against white people. This is going to be this is this is really the heart was the heart of a lot of the Trumpist appeal. But it's becoming more nakedly explicit uh, on shows like Tucker Carlson's. Right. And I think there's polling that shows that uh, that the majority of Republicans or maybe it's a majority of Trump supporters. I don't know if there's a big distinction at this point. But uh, believe that, yeah, the victims of racism, the real victims of racism right now are, are white people in America. And uh, yeah, again, I don't even know where to begin <laughs> with that one. I, I Yeah, I don't. Well, I, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's how invested they are in racial division. Right. And, but, you know, and, I was about and, to think it, you know, when the when the when the voting system company owns uh, uh OAN and and uh, and Newsmax. We'll, we'll see what kind <laughs> of programming they have. But yeah, no. But it, it it is interesting, and I'm I'm I am watching all of this, and you know I'm one of those that believe that so the the woke world can be quite extreme and undermine its own case rather dramatically, and is very illiberal. On the other hand, um, the this whole idea of of white genocide and replacement theory is taking the country into a very scary area. But uh, you, you can see that, that, that having, having given up the issue of fiscal responsibility and actual policy and legislation, uh, this is an aspect of the culture war that I think is going to become more and more prominent of the Republican Party. So playing that race card, I think, is going to become uh, more significant for the right than it has been in, in the past. You, you know, it's you know, I know that, that Republicans have been accused of uh, playing that card and of having racial dog whistles for a very long time. Well, it's not a dog whistle anymore. OK, do you hear, <laughs> you hear Tucker Carlson's also opening up another front, not just about uh, racism, but also about women in the military. Oh, right. Yeah. It's like 1995 called and wants its issue back. <laughs> oh, 1950s called. OK, so <laughs> right. well, let's play. Let's play Tucker Carlson talking about women in the military. So we've got new hairstyles and maternity flight suits. Pregnant women are going to fight our wars. It's a mockery of the U.S. military. While China's military becomes more masculine as it's assembled the world's largest navy, our military needs to become, as Joe Biden says, more feminine. Whatever feminine means anymore, since men and women no longer exist. The bottom line is it's out of control, and the Pentagon's going along with this. Again, this is a mockery of the U.S. military and its core mission, which is winning wars. One of the few people who's been paying attention to this is someone who served in the U.S. military, Indiana Congressman Jim Banks. Whatever. Yeah. So we, this is we're going to have a maternity flight suit gap. This is like the guy from Strange Love, right? When, and when this the, is why the Chinese are going to kick our ass <laughs> right. because we have we have pregnant women <laughs> fighting our war, which is a mockery, which is all part of the abolition of gender. So I yeah. mean, you can just see all these memes sort of being shoved together. You know, they're they're they're. They're, they're, they're coming for you white men um, right. who want to fly jets, I get. <laughs> you know, this is a, our society is you, you know, uh, the real American is a guy that wants to fly the jet, you know, in, in the flight suit while reading Dr. Seuss and playing with Mr. Potato Head. I guess that's I guess that's it. OK, so I had, I had a weird moment today and, and you can talk me down from all of this. <laughs> all right. right, I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a shot if I feel we, I need to. Maybe I won't. Okay, so Biden is going to give the speech tonight. President Biden is going to give us a speech. He's going to talk about a return to normalcy, and you know, Lord knows we are desperate for normalcy. I, I would, you know, I've been fighting for normalcy for a long time, but I, I, I think that what's about to happen is going to be better than normal. 
I just sense this sense of optimism right now that is, you know, has something to do with what's happening in politics, but it's not specifically. And, and I'm, I'm basing this on the fact that it's springtime. People are getting vaccinated. You get a sense that we may be coming to the end of this dark tunnel. The economy is coming back. And so you have all of these things happening at once. You know, people are making predict. Uh, I think it was is it Morgan Stanley uh, projecting that uh, the economy is going to grow at the rate of what eight uh, percent? What is it? Eight point. I thought they said close to six or something like well, that. No, but well, Morgan, yeah. yeah, no, so others have said six. Um, yeah. Others have, have raised Wells Fargo. Uh, raise the full year GDP growth to 6.4%. Morgan Stanley says 8.1%. People are getting vaccinated. um, And the prospect of just going out into the world, I mean, you think about it, you know, the dinners, the baseball games, you know, the picnics, the baseball games, you know, hugs, trips to Target, you know, going to get to go to weddings and graduations, you know, see friends, maybe go to movies, concerts, all of this stuff. I, I just sense every time I hear somebody getting the vaccine, there's a kind of a euphoria, an optimism that I'm trying to remember the, what else inspired that. And so, you know, Biden is lucky, but, but he's also, I think, done a lot of good things. But I think he's about to have a moment. I, ju- I just think you can have an America is back. We're back to our lives moment sometime late spring, early summer. And and I'm not sure that most of the political pundits have really sort of captured that mood. What do you think? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think that just as after you've had a bad cold, you um, you realize you take it for granted after it's gone <laughs> that how wonderful it is to breathe again and how painful it was during that time. I think you know, this country and the world, frankly, is, is ready for that. And people are going to uh, enjoy doing those things that you describe all the more. Because they can, because it's been such a long time since they were able to. And yeah, you're right. Uh, the person in the White House gets the credit, whether he necessarily deserves it or not. And uh, in in fairness to, to Joe Biden, I think his entire campaign was, man, I don't want to fight. I just yeah. want things to be normal. And that's why so many progressives hated him during the during the primaries. Was that, what do you mean you're not going to fight? What, what, you know, what's this about? And uh, he was right. He was right. That's what people wanted after four years of Trump was just settle, just chill. All right. We're, we're tired of all the nonsense. And 81 million people said, yeah, I want that. Well, so also a president who would be a president. I mean, it, it still is kind of disconcerting to, that, you know, you have all of these distractions going on and, and Joe Biden is not tweeting about it. He's not commenting on it. He's not getting drawn into it. The only distraction we've had has been the the, the, the story about his dog biting somebody. I mean, that's about it. <laughs> and, and and he's been focused on doing the job and getting things done, getting legislation passed, getting money into people's pockets. Now, I have, you know, qualms about all of that, but he successfully has done this under extremely difficult. I mean, his legislative victory this week is more impressive than Barack Obama's legislative victory because he had no margin for error. So that's like a wow moment. And, and what's going on with the vaccinations, again, is, uh, you know, you now have a plan, you have uh, things that are happening. And so, he, you know, yes, he's he's been focusing on actually doing the job in contrast to Trump. But I also think that there is, um, I don't know, do you know people who've been vaccinated? I, yes. Yeah. yeah. My parents, for example. Okay. Yeah. I mean, were they pretty jazzed about that? Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, they're. I mean, you were jazzed about it. Oh, uh, <laughs> 
I've, I've been not being able to see them now for over a year. And uh, so this is this is a good thing. This is the way the world ought to be. And yeah, getting back little, to that is is nice. Yeah, it, no, it, it's more than nice, Sharish. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's going to be amazing. It really is. You know, because you're not going to take it for granted anymore. Well, and I I'm, hope trying not. To, I, I'm trying to think of the last time there was anything like this. I mean, I've never been excited by getting a shot before. I've never, you know, there's no never been anything involving the medical world at all where I'm going, I'm really excited now. I'm really happy about it. But people are. And I just get kind of get that sense of that, you know, that pent up, uh, that pent up explosion that's about to hit in th- this country. And of course, you know, I, I I read all the political stuff where they're talking about, well, you know, now now it gets tough for Biden. I I, I get that it's going to be hard getting other things through, but um, this is a very unusual experience. Your analogy of of having a cold and suddenly being able to go out into the world. I almost feel like it's like we've been living in this cave and we're coming out of this cave and we're all kind of bleary eyed and it's a, it's a <laughs> spring morning. You go, Oh shit. The world is still out here and it's wonderful. Yeah. So that's my irrational exuberance of the morning, which will pass. Um, yeah. Well, well, I'm not sure that you're wrong. So uh, I, you know, I, I think that we are in pretty good shape and uh, we had even even in the last administration, most of the people in the federal government were uh, career employees who put their heads down and did their jobs, and that was true at the CDCs, that was true at the NIH, et cetera. So you know, all of this credit doesn't go to Joe Biden, but he does get the credit for making, for showing the leadership and saying to the country that yeah, this is important, and here's what we need to do. If we do X, Y, and Z, we can be in a good place by summer and early fall, and he's done that. Um, and, and, it, and it's refreshing to have a grown-up, you know, uh, in the White House again. And I'll, I'll tell you, as a White House reporter, I'm still trained to uh, clench my teeth when I see, oh, no, a statement from the president or a <laughs> statement by the press secretary. What insane nonsense is it now? You know, what do I have to spend the rest of the day debunking or whatever? And it's something innocuous <laughs> and totally fine, and I can just go on with the rest of my day. Yeah. And yeah, when I, when I, when I was running through the other things is like, yeah, you know, the, the orange guy is going to be out there. He's going to be issuing these silly statements, but the fact is he's gone. So things, things are good. Not sure it's happy (laughs) days are here again, but uh, you know, so Sharish Date, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Appreciate it very much. The book is the useful idiot and a new edition is out. Thanks for coming back on. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, but you knew that. And we'll do this all over again.